Hello and welcome to the Women's Agenda podcast. My name is Angela Priestley and I am the publisher on Women's Agenda and I am joined today by a special guest host, Ramona Vijayarasa. Hello Ramona, how are you? Hi Angela, thanks for having me, I'm doing really well. So I will introduce Ramona shortly, but on the episode today, we are going to be talking about just why women's leadership matters. I'm sure we have all different sorts of ideas on why it matters, but we're going to get to some really significant pieces around that in terms of why it matters and why we should all be caring about it a lot more. Thank you for listening. So, Ramona, it is lovely to meet you finally after we have published a couple of your pieces on Women's Agenda. Uh, Thanks for having me, Angela. It's great to be here. Congratulations on all your work. And we just kind of had a quick chat then about all the different places that you've been living all over the world and what you have been doing, settling back into Sydney only kind of five and a half years ago. But just to share with our audience, so a little bit on Ramona, she is a senior lecturer at the University of Technology, Sydney, an advocate for gender justice, the author of the just published book called The Woman President, Leadership, Law and Legacy for Women Based on Experiences from South and Southeast Asia, a human rights lawyer and the creator of the Gender Legislative Index, which I'll have a go at describing here, which uses AI and human evaluators to evaluate whether a law will advance or hinder women's rights based on criteria from international women's rights law standards. So just really incredible work. I'm so happy that I'm getting to know you right now. So (laughs) congratulations. I have so many questions. But before we get there, as we do have you as a co-host, we like to share a win for women from the past week or so. And I know that this might take you out of your usual areas of work, but what's a win that you've seen over the past week? Well, I love celebrating wins because we do dwell so much on the challenges, but I think this week has been a real win for women in sport. You know, I think so many of us grew up with so much attention on TV and on radio to men in sports. And if you look at the Commonwealth Games in Birmingham right through to the women's European football, women's Euro, there is so many more people watching women play sport and I think that's fantastic. The women's Euro game when England beat Germany was actually the most watched TV broadcast of the year in the UK so far. So I think that's been a real win for women this week. It really is. And these records keep getting smashed as well. I know that there was a record earlier this year in the first quarter of 2022 where viewing records were smashed for women's sport. We've seen it in Australia as well. And so, I mean, we were just talking about the AFLW within our team here and they're about to launch the seventh season later this month. So the first round will be happening, I think, around the 25th of August. And I just think when I was growing up and I used to watch AFL. It just wasn't even an option to play it, let alone ever think about playing it professionally. And we've just come such a long way and it's just opened up so many more opportunities for women and girls. And we also know that women in sports are just such great ambassadors for their sports and their communities as well. And for women. So it's really fantastic and hopefully sustained. You know, my I have an eight-year-old daughter and she headed out the front door today to her sports carnival and she turned to me and said, mummy, I'm going to win a ribbon. And I don't mind whether or not she wins a ribbon, but I love that she was so confident and so excited about the athletics carnival. And I think seeing women athletes has been a really big part of that. So this is a a really big change. 
Yeah, yeah. We've also had the Commonwealth Games as well, which has been great to see. And Australia's obviously done very well. And but I, I always love the team sports, and I just love seeing how many people are getting out to see these games. And we know that those records will continue to be smashed as well. I'm going to share a win as well. It's a little bit cheeky, and I haven't really discussed this with you previously, so I don't know where you stand on this issue. But my win is for those who've been keeping a keen eye on New South Wales politics this week. You may have noticed there is this inquiry occurring into the former Deputy Leader, John Barillaro, being appointed to the Plum Trade New York job, uh, which was paying half a million dollars a year. And so he got appointed to that despite the fact that a woman was actually appointed previously to him. And that the role was first offered to Jenny West, who recently gave evidence about how the position was rescinded and she was told it would instead be given as a present for someone else. That was her evidence. So this is a strange win, I know. But basically, we've also seen evidence this week that scores were tweaked after the appointment of Barilara in terms of who the preferred candidate would be. And we've seen the cover letter that Barilaro shared for that position, including the grammatical mistakes, spelling errors. I make plenty of those, so I don't think that's it. But um, as well as the vague suggestions that he'd written as to why he was the best person for the role. So where am I going with this? I guess where I'm going is that I think it is somewhat of a win that this has become a massive headache for the Perite government in that, you know, they've seen the resignation of, of one of his ministers and a win in that there's some transparency over this. So clearly there's kind of a jobs for the boys thing that has gone on and we're looking at this saying, no, this appointment wasn't on. It's getting so much media attention, obviously. I see all of that as a win. Also a win for those of us who ever think about applying for a job and worrying that we're not 100% qualified. I encourage you to just to go and think about that cover letter and the fact that there are always going to be people who are not qualified applying for the roles. So you may as well too. Well, I think this is definitely a win for women, not just because people are talking about Barry Laro's appointment, but because precisely because people are mentioning the fact that a woman who was appointed to the role was overlooked and, and pushed aside. So I think people are having that reflection on what it means from a gender perspective. And I think we talk a lot about corruption, which we should be because it's really fundamental and really undermines society, but I don't think we talk enough about how those kinds of untransparent decisions affect women. And this is allowing us to do that. So it's an odd win, but it's definitely a win. Yeah. And I think it's a good lead into your work as well, especially if I think about some of the women in Australian politics uh, at the federal level who have obviously been pushing an anti-corruption uh, body uh, of, of, of some sort at the federal level. And we've seen how women have really been instrumental in trying to make that happen so, Ramona, to get to your work, I guess I mean, we often talk about the lack of women leaders globally and obviously at the business level and especially in politics on the world stage where your stats just, just this week that we published were just 30 of the world's prime ministers and presidents are female. But your work and your book is really examining the difference that women leaders make. So shifting away from this focus of the lack of women involved to the actual difference that women are making and you highlight some really great examples. I guess, I don't know how far back to go here, but where did this come from? Why did you decide to pursue this work? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I suppose I think it was actually the lack of women in leadership that was the motivation. You know, I've 
lived and travelled all around the world and I've been really privileged in that experience. I've fought you know, for, against domestic violence in Brazil and I've met with women on the floating villages of Cambodia. It's stood aside women farmers in Liberia. So I've seen change in all of these countries. It may not be at the pace we want, but I've seen change. But I think when you think about how few women have made it to the level of president or prime minister in a country, it's remarkable how slow progress has been. So if you want to put that 30 women presidents and prime ministers in context, that's 30 women leaders from around 200 countries, some of which have both the position of president or prime minister. So you're talking 30 women out of around 230. It's so low. And so, you know, we've got Beyonce singing, you know, girls run the world, but girls clearly don't rule the world. And I think we need to talk about why we're not seeing more women getting to those leadership roles and how significant that is. So some of the listeners may have seen the photo of the G7 a few weeks ago where you had all these men from the group of seven countries sitting on the hills of Germany and only one female who's the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen. And and women can't be at these global decision-making tables if they're not the head of their nations. Having said that, as you said, what I'm trying to do with The Woman President, my book, is to flip the narrative and say, okay, Let's shift away from focusing on the absence of women and start looking at what happens when women are present. Because I do think there's a different kind of leadership model when women are present. I've seen women's groups mobilise more resources when there's a window of opportunity because a woman is a leader. I've seen women-friendly outcomes. I've seen more female cabinet appointments. So, you know, let's start talking about what happens when women finally do get to that highly coveted top job. Mm. So how do you determine what happens when women get to those jobs? So in terms of the method behind my research, you know, I was very privileged because I got to go to all three countries. It seems a long time ago now in these COVID days, but I actually travelled to the Philippines, Indonesia and Sri Lanka. I've interviewed former women MPs, cabinet members, women and men activists and scholars from the region. I've sat in the living rooms of people who talked for hours about politics then and today. And I use that as an opportunity to do this comparative study of four women leaders from these three nations and to really reflect on what kind of pathway to politics do they have and how did they change the laws when they were in power. And that's what also led me to create the Gender Legislative Index to actually evaluate those laws. So when these women were in power, what kind of laws were enacted and and did those laws actually make women's lives better? Mm. Why did you choose those three countries? And I appreciate the first answer. Part of the answer would be because there's not many countries, I guess, to choose from in terms of those that have had female presidents or female prime ministers or the very tiny handful that have had both or both at the same time. So so why choose those three countries? Well, I think there's a few reasons. I mean, the, the South and Southeast Asia have this incredible phenomenon where despite the fact that numbers are so low, relatively high number of women have made it to president and prime minister in the region. And at the same time, and this is something that a lot of scholars in my area face, a lot of our analysis comes from North America and Europe. And so by studying women leaders in Asia, we have an opportunity to develop a theory with an Asian global South perspective. I think Sri Lanka is also a really interesting example, especially given what's happening in Sri Lanka now, because Sri Lanka actually had the first ever elected female head of government when Siramavo Bandaranaike was elected in 1960. Now, she was quite conservative and it has a very mixed track record in terms of human rights, but she was the first ever female elected head of government in the world. And her daughter, Chandrika Bandaranaike, was the fifth president, and she's the subject of my study. So for me, Sri Lanka had to be included. I am also of Sri Lankan origin, so it was really 
you know, a welcoming experience as a researcher to go back and, and research in Sri Lanka. The Philippines has had two female presidents, which is quite rare, um, including Corazon Aquino, who was a real trailblazer for female activists to actually get to be heard by government and to get positions in the bureaucracy. And then Megawati was Indonesia's first and only female president. What's really interesting about Megawati is she actually, her party won the election and she should have been made president. And there was this big tussle around whether Indonesia, a Muslim majority country, should have a female leader. And so she was actually denied the presidency when she won the election. And it was only when the party became dissatisfied with the president that was appointed that she got to step up. So I think there are really three interesting examples of, of countries where you know, you've got highly patriarchal political systems and these women have managed to rise and I think do something useful and impactful for fellow women. Mm. Okay. So in these countries that, yes, do have these um, highly patriarchal societies, how did they break through? I mean, are there any, I know that's going to be a complex answer, but is there one or two key trends that you'd say as to why this has been the case there? Well, I think you have to recognise that these are elite women. You know, They're very educated. In the case of Chandrika Bandaranaike, she was educated in France. And some people really had issues with the fact that she was a widow, didn't remarry, had short hair, spoke French. So she kind of, they kind of in some ways broke the norm but they were very elite women so I think we have to acknowledge that they also use a pathway to politics that's related to the men who've gone before them so you know either a deceased husband or a father or mother and so it's they're using familial ties to get into power Megawati Sukarnaputri was Sukarno's daughter Chandrika Bandaranaike followed her mother and her father Having said that, you know, I also think these women were strategic in their use of gender to aid their rise to power. And it's interesting we talked about corruption a little bit earlier because I think this is an example of gender being used in a way that's a double-edged sword. So a lot of countries like to see women leaders rise after periods of dictatorship or corruption because women are seen as cleaner, women are seen as less corrupt. And so Corazon Aquino in her campaign, she described herself as a crusading housewife in a den of thieves. I really love that language. And they used that to, to, to get votes. You know, people want to change and they offered something different from the dictators of the time before. Having said that, I think when women are corrupt, found to be corrupt, the fall from grace is much greater. So Gloria Macapagal Arroyo, she led the Philippines from 2001 to 2010 and in the 2004 election, there was actually a recording of her trying to rig the election. And when I went back to the Philippines, this is all that people could talk about, which I think is really disappointing because there were incredible laws passed during her time, but there was so much attention to this corruption scandal. So I think there's such a great expectation on women to be better, to be better leaders, that when they don't perform, they really get blighted by that that fall. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to put this in our own experiences here in Australia as well especially, you know, we're coming up to the 10-year anniversary of Julia Gillard's misogyny speech and kind of almost 10 years as well since she lost the leadership there back to Kevin Rudd and then obviously Kevin Rudd then consequently lost that federal election as well. But that was one thing was that that seemed to follow her time in politics was that idea about, you know, how she came to power and how she took the leadership from Kevin Rudd and how she'd stabbed him in the back and all this language that would get used about her and how she ended up as leader of the Labor Party at that point. But obviously we, we have seen leadership transitions over and over again since then and it's become kind of almost 
part of Australian politics in a way, but that really did follow her around. And then we also saw the sexism and the vitriol that she experienced. I mean, I'm wondering if, uh, I mean, I know you would have studied this, but how did they go in terms of the the sexism that they would have experienced just from the media? It's a tough one because even that example you say that it was used, you know, just call yourself a crusading housewife. I mean, obviously Julia Gillard never used language like that about herself. Um, but what did these women experience in terms of what people would say about them? Newspaper columnists, the media, the general public. Well, I think the Julia Gillard example is a really good one of this double-edged sword because it's so true of women leaders all around the world, from you know Australia's Julia Gillard and Helen Clark everywhere, right through to these countries, Ellen Serloff in Liberia, is that these women struggle to be both authoritative but sufficiently empathetic. It's such an expectation to balance both. And, you know, I think that when you ask me what they suffered, I find the analogies and the global similarities remarkable. So when I was in Sri Lanka to interview a women's rights activist, we sat in the office of her NGO and she knew President Kumaratunga of Sri Lanka quite well. And she turned to me and said, oh, and then the woman cut her hair. She cut her hair and then she stopped being the image of the strong South Asian woman. And I immediately thought, wow, that's such a strong correlation to what we saw around the media treatment of Julia Gillard and her haircut of the day and her dresses of the day. So it's really very similar. In the same case in Sri Lanka, Kumaratunga tried to form a coalition with the Muslim Party. And then there were all these there were all these caricatures in the newspaper with all these sexual undertones. So it's it's this the same sort of misogyny and vitriol that these women leaders are experiencing. And I can only imagine that until there are more women who make it to the top job, until that pathway is smoother and easier, it's too easy for the media and political opponents to turn the attention back onto these issues. And we have to realise what's sacrifice here. If a leader, a female leader, spends all this time fighting against that misogyny in the newspaper, that's less airtime for the politics of the day. And that's exactly why they're there in the first place. So these women end up becoming objects of the media instead of subjects of the political process, which is what their role is in the first place. Mm. Have you seen evidence where... um... I guess, first of all, I'll put this in context, is that Julia Gillard, in her final speech as Prime Minister, she said that it would be easier for the second female Prime Minister and easy again for the third and it would continue to get easier. Do you see evidence that that's the case? And I think I'm thinking about, you know, Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand, she's the third uh, prime, female Prime Minister there. Theresa May was the second in the UK. Um, do, do you see evidence where it does get easier? I do, and, I, and I've got a concrete example from the book. So I actually was very privileged to be in an email conversation with former President Gloria Macapagal-Arroyo, and she explicitly said to me, Corazon Aquino made the pathway easier for me. And she said both in terms of being the first, but also because she appointed her to be in her government. So Corazon Aquino was the door opener for Gloria Macapagal-Arroyo to get into her government and in both respects made the pathway easier. So I think that is the reality. And I think it can also be a challenge. So if we look at the current election in the UK with Liz Truss's running as another Tory woman, there's this question of will she role model herself on the past Tory women or will she be able to stand alone? So I think, yes, the pathway becomes easier. You've broken a lot of the doors. These women leaders speak back and down to the media to refocus their attention on what matters. But still there's been so few examples that these women are then questioned around, whether will they offer something new or just be the model of what's gone before them? 
Yeah, and you see that with the current UK election. I mean, I just read a piece actually that was comparing the two frontrunners now against where they stand on women's rights. And you see where Liz Trouss, I mean, she's getting a lot of criticism for not publicly being out there and making a statement about Roe v. Wade being overturned in the United States and not publicly denouncing that decision. So in some ways, these women leaders will get held up to a higher standard, not just in terms of how they perform, but also especially in terms of how they perform on women's rights as well which is, um, I guess, what we want to see is one of the benefits out of it too. So, And I think, I think this question of is a conservative woman leader still a win for women, a really interesting one, especially because you also have Georgie Maloney running in Italy. So September will actually potentially shift that number of 30 up to 32, depending on the outcome of the UK Tory vote and the um, election in Italy. And so you've got these two very conservative women. Georgie Maloney is very right very far right. And and I think we want to ask ourselves, uh, if these women are successful, can we chalk it up as a win for women? Because they've got extremely conservative politics, for example, around refugees. You'll see um, make it much, they'll make it much harder for migration in the region. They're both pro-low um, taxes. So you can imagine a reduction in public services, which will affect low-income women as well. So you, you can't imagine policy changes being positive for women, but it will mean a significant rise in the number of women at the decision-making table. So, for example, when the G20 meet in Indonesia in November, if those two women get up, you suddenly got two women at the table plus the president of the European Commission. That's really significant in terms of that visual imagery of having women at the table. So I think it's a real challenge for progressive women, women, I imagine, the audience, to really grapple with how do we respond to the UK Tory election and the election in Italy and can we count these as a as a positive in any way for women? Mm. I'm thinking of Hillary Clinton famously saying women's rights are human rights but then if we have leaders who are female but then go about pairing back human rights what does that mean obviously for women's rights so that is clearly an issue I'd love to hear I mean I don't know if you could simplify into a a simple response in terms of what's your opinion when it comes to these really I mean ultra right or potentially conservative women getting up I mean there is I guess the role modeling aspect that people can say well I can see myself in that leadership but would it be better not to have them there at all I would say, and it's, I guess it's a bit unsatisfactory because I think it's a win and a loss. And I talk a lot about the role model effect in my book because, you know, I had women come to me in all three countries and say to me, it's not crazy for a young woman or girl today to say they want to be president just because these women have gone before them. So presidents Kumaratunga, Megawati and Aquino were the first female presidents in those countries. So they shifted this idea that this is exclusively a domain just for men. And you suddenly, when you had President Kumaratunga as president, her mother was prime minister. So you've got a mother-daughter duo on stage. You know, this language of Madam President misses, it's very significant. I don't think we can overlook that. And so I do think there's a role model effect. And in some respects, the conservative women are entitled to, to see other conservative women role models in their nations. Having said that, I think we also need to be really cognizant of the fact that a male leader could do a lot for women. And all these nations have had male leaders, some of whom have been really significant in terms of cabinet appointments or gender responsive budgeting. So I don't think we should assume that male leaders can't be feminist male leaders. 
Um, but of course, the ideal package, wouldn't it be a woman leader who really wants to advance women's rights and is vocal and articulate in doing that? Yes, and is able to do so, I guess, in the face of their own party colleagues or whatever they might be facing within their parliament, because that can obviously get in the way too in terms of legislation. Which is interesting, because I think we really also then need to be talking about the significance of numbers, which is so relevant in the Australian context. You know, there's so, it's been such a remarkable shift after the May election that inevitably it will be easier for the women to make it. To not talk about just women's issues, but women and gender diversity in all its fronts. So numbers is really key. And I think if you look at that executive level of leadership, if you look at Finland, you've got one of the youngest women world leaders in Sanna Marin, but she also heads a government with a five-party coalition all led by women. So I think you know, that's a, an environment and a climate in which she can say and do so much, bringing a gender lens but also bringing a progressive lens to all sorts of issues, for example, climate as well. So I think, you know, it's it's that supportive environment that can allow a, a woman leader like that to do so much more. Yeah. So we, we published a research from you, an opinion piece from you before the election, looking at the large number of female independents uh, who were running at the time. Obviously, a lot of them did get elected. And obviously, many have given their maiden speeches in Parliament over the last couple of weeks. Um, and we're really seeing their presence now. And I want to point to one example today, just from the past hour or so, where um, the coalition's Bridget Archer actually crossed the floor in support of the Albanese government's climate legislation and the reworked target that they are establishing there. Part of me is like, I wonder if that is also a bit of numbers as well. There is some confidence there. There is this confidence to, to that you're able to uh, get heard now in this parliament. I think that's a fantastic example. And, um, you know, I, 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 would, I would love to see more decisions made in parliament, not necessarily on political lines, but on the policy lines. And I think that's a good example where you've got a climate perhaps where women from the Liberal Party can cross the floor because they're more better enabled in this supporting environment to do that. And we can see the government making um, policy choices that are going to be sustainable and better for Australia in the long run and not just a political fight. You know, I think it also helps that some of these independent women have been really vocal in speaking out about climate change. So it's a particular issue where women have really been very vocal and not hesitating in making this a priority agenda. When I wrote that piece for Women's Agenda on how significant it was that there were so many women independents running, I was really shocked that at that time mainstream media hadn't really picked up on how significant this would be. I feel like it took to really close to the election and then after the election for mainstream audiences to start talking about how significant it was that so many female independents were running. And yet you can see in the aftermath how significant that's been. Like Zali Stegel has been very vocal on saying that the Labor government's targets, they're a good start, but there's there's more to be done if we want to make a really significant dent in responding to climate change and for Australia to even remotely be rising as a leader in this space. And so, you know, this, I think this is just the beginning of more vocal voices from females in Parliament who are willing to push for a more progressive agenda and, and I think we'll really benefit from it in the years to come. Yeah, and there was one, I mean, in that piece, I remember there was that stat because I think we were emailing back and forth about it, was that when we looked at those um, that had, you know, some link to Climate 200 um, and we looked at the 22 and so 19 of those 22 were female 
and we that wasn't really being pulled out anywhere. I mean, obviously you see it in the numbers in terms of election night, but um, it is quite incredible that so many were getting behind a really big push um, on climate change. Amazing. And then, and, and when you saw a, um, a collage of those women's faces, it was sort of remarkable to me that people weren't picking up on the significance of that, that the, the, the influence or the sway that the woman's vote really and women candidates had in that election. But we've now seen it and everyone's talking about it. Mm. Okay, so to close out, I guess it'd be good to hear more on the reasons as to why it matters. Obviously, we've shared some of it here. But um, that third reason that you put in the piece for us was around the role modelling, which I feel like we've spoken to. But can you talk us through just maybe just briefly, because obviously this is the subject of your book as well, but what are the other two key reasons there as to the difference that it makes according to your research? Well, I think the second one, and I briefly touched on this, is cabinet appointments. So I've seen in those three countries more women appointed to cabinet roles by those presidents than their predecessors. Indonesia was a, a slight exception. But in the case of, for example, Gloria Makapagalavoy, she had 12 female cabinet members appointed. President Komarotunga appointed more women than her predecessor, but also to roles where women don't normally get to play a part. So she had a woman um, minister for construction, housing and development, which became really significant in Sri Lanka when the country was hit by the tsunami. So the minister in place was then able to make sure widows got livelihood assistance and women were part of the committees to respond to the tsunami. So I think the fact that you've got women presidents in power may mean that more women are pulled up the political ladder. But I suppose the, the connection or the, and between women's leadership and women's lives that I'm most excited about in my book, The Woman President, is this impact on the law. Because I've seen that when these women are in power, you've got gender responsive legislative outcomes. I can give you a really concrete example. So Australia is rightly celebrating that we will have 10 days paid leave for victims of domestic violence. This is a huge win. In the Philippines, the Philippines enacted a 2004 law on violence against women in which they introduced 10 days of paid leave for victims of domestic violence under Gloria Macapagal Arroyo. That was 2004, here it's 2022. And so to me, it's a really good example of many things. One, that law, positive law reform happens when women are in power because women's movements mobilise and they directly lobby the president to get these important laws enacted. But also that perhaps we want to be looking as a nation to countries for good practice that aren't among the usual nations that we look to. And some, there's some really good examples in our region of some of this practice. You know, the Philippines under the previous president, Corazon Aquino, introduced paid parental leave back in 1992, that was 60 days of paid parental leave, and then they've increased it since, whereas we only got paid parental leave, as many would know, in 2010. So there's been remarkable wins for women in the law in the Philippines, Indonesia and Sri Lanka when these three women were in power. Mm, mm, incredible. Um, it's, it's really fascinating research. Thank you so much for sharing more on it, and I encourage people to read uh, your book. Where can people get your book and where can people find you as well? So the book is available, The Woman President is available with Oxford University Press. It is a little bit expensive. I'm a big believer in public services. So go get your library to order you a copy so more people can enjoy it. And you can find me at the University of Technology, Sydney. I would love to get feedback on the book. I'd love to hear people's thoughts on the Gender Legislative Index as a tool to really push for our governments, our parliaments to enact better laws for women. So feel free to reach out to me. 
Great. Well, thank you so much for sharing. And I haven't read the book yet, so I'm looking forward to getting a copy and reading more as well. It's just, it's, I, I, I love this topic. It's fascinating. So, and it's great to also see the concrete examples as opposed to just sort of, you know, this idea that it, that it's great or to only kind of considering the role modeling aspect of it when it, it runs so much deeper than that. Well, I think it's, it, it is really key to have the right evidence. You know, when, when COVID-19 hit a couple of years ago, there were lots of people, including scholars who started saying countries when a woman leads are doing better managing COVID. But in my view, I think it was too soon to say, and we were so unsure about what was happening. So if we want to make a case for women leaders doing things better and differently, I think we do need those ev- that evidence and those examples so we have a really nuanced and, and careful conversation. So I hope I've offered that in my book. Mm. All right. Well, thank you. And thank you for listening to the Women's Agenda podcast. A reminder that you can access all the stories that we discussed in some shape or form on our website, where we'll also have a story based on this conversation and links and other information so you can reach out to Ramona. Thank you for listening.